This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. New questions today as another woman comes forward to say she was sexually assaulted by Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. In this case, while they were in college together, the woman Deborah Ramirez lives in Colorado. Her allegations follow those of Christine Blasey Ford, who says Kavanaugh tried to assault her while they were in high school. Ford's claim prompted President Trump to tweet, quoting here, I have no doubt if the attack on Dr. Ford was as bad as she says, charges would have been immediately filed with local law enforcement authorities by either her or her loving parents. The president also tweeted, why didn't someone call the FBI 36 years ago? We wanted to explore why someone might not report a sexual assault right away, or perhaps ever. Bree Franklin leads the Colorado Coalition Against Sexual Assault, and welcome to the program. Good morning, Ryan. In this new allegation, a Colorado woman, as I said, named Deborah Ramirez, accuses Kavanaugh of exposing himself in front of her, causing her to touch his genitalia without her consent. She says this happened at a college party and alcohol was involved. I want to note that your organization tweeted just recently using the hashtag Believe survivors. And I thought we might start with that. Can you tell me more about what you mean by that? Yeah. um, You know, I think we've found over and over again that um, the vast majority of people who disclose sexual assault are um, telling the truth. Uh, It's a very difficult thing to talk about. And I think it's really important, particularly from our perspective as advocates, that we start from the premise that they are telling the truth and that we're going to believe them. Um, another interesting hashtag that has popped up um, in the past couple of days is why I didn't report. And I think that really gets to some of the questions you have around um, why it may take somebody a while to come forward or why they may not come forward at all. Indeed, I'd like to explore that. But you say that the vast majority of those who come forward uh, saying that they've been sexually assaulted are telling the truth. Help people understand what you base that on. I'd love to explore that further. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of uh, research out there, studies out there that show that the um, rate of false reporting is less than 2% or 3%. Um, you know, it's it's kind of the same for other major crimes like murder. Um, so, the you know, people are not coming forward with these stories um, unless something's happened to them. I think We also need to look at what happens when victims come forward with these kinds of stories and the scrutiny and the attacks that they are put under, that this is not something that people are just doing for kicks. And that they face, uh, indeed, a lot of pressure, sometimes even threats when they come forward. So to, to this idea, you mentioned that hashtag, why I didn't report, which follows the president's tweet we mentioned. Uh, what do you make of this claim that, gosh, if an attack were that bad, surely someone would have reported it, either the survivor or the survivor's family? Yeah, I mean, I think in this case, it's important to remember that we're talking about something that happened 30 plus years ago. Um, We didn't have the same language and the same information that we have now. The term date rape didn't exist. 
Um, you know, we had a lot of misinformation and misunderstanding just in the general public that rape was just something that happened by a stranger who jumped out of a bush with a knife or a gun. So, you know, when we look at it in that historical context, it, it's not surprising that for something that happened that long ago that uh, a victim didn't come forward. But even today, you know, I, we're not consistently teaching our youth about um, healthy sexuality and consent and what isn't okay through prevention programs. And we're also seeing with the rise of social media and, and other public forms of communication, again, how much scrutiny victims are put under um, that I think it really deters someone from wanting to come public, especially with a public figure, because they know that they're going to be attacked and scrutinized and every little detail is going to be picked apart. I want to say that Brett Kavanaugh has responded to this newest allegation, call, calling it, quote, a smear, plain and simple. He says he looks forward to testifying about the truth and, quote, defending my good name and the reputation for character and integrity I have spent a lifetime building against these last-minute allegations. Uh, but I, I suppose you're answering in a part a larger question there, which is, is this moment in time in any way helpful for victims? Does it encourage them to come out? Does it show them that they can? Or it it sounds to me like it might be discouraging. You know, I think it's a little bit of both, and it probably depends on the individual. Um, I think we definitely see for some individuals it's been empowering to be able to use those hashtags like Me Too or Why I Didn't Report to finally share their story. I think we also see in certain cases um, where a perpetrator may have many, many victims that by one person coming forward, it gives strength, credibility, um, and, you know, and helps other victims come forward. So we've seen with Cosby, Nassar, Weinstein, um, that once one person comes forward, other people feel like they have that uh, ability and support to come forward as well. On the other hand, um, you know, that that first person coming forward often takes um, the brunt of those attacks and that scrutiny, and it can be very difficult. And we've seen in the case of um, Lassie Ford, you know, there, there have been death threats against her. The allegations indeed here did happen decades ago, and, and memories begin to fade. Evidence becomes harder to come by. And so it strikes me that two things are happening, uh, Bree Franklin, of the Colorado Coalition Against Sexual Assault. While survivors may wait a long time to report for the reasons we've explored, it also becomes harder to prove what happened, no? In some ways, um, you know, there are lots of quote-unquote cold cases that law enforcement, the FBI, investigates, and there are still witnesses, there are still some evidence What we know about how our memories work and how our brains work is that traumatic events are different types of memories than just your standard memory, and it's something that really imprints on your brain. And there may be particular um, things that that they don't remember, the exact date, um, those types of things, but there are very clear memories, and, um, and and we know this is how traumatic events affect us. Interesting. Thank you so much for your time, Bree. Yeah, definitely. Bree Franklin, Executive Director of the Colorado Coalition Against Sexual Assault. (laughs) 
Whether it's former Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor or media mogul Ted Turner, people who've made significant contributions to the West are honored with the Wallace Stegner Award. This year's recipient is a filmmaker whose style is unmistakable. In the spring of 1919, as the victorious Allied powers met in Paris to rebuild a world shattered by the Great War, President Woodrow Wilson headed the American delegation, housed in the Hotel Crillon. Okay, if you guessed Ken Burns, you're right. The award-winning documentarian will receive the award at CU Boulder next week. We thought it would be fun to talk with Burns about one of his favorite chapters of Western history, the Lewis and Clark Expedition. It's funny, you know, it is almost, in a way, a classroom cliche. (laughs) Uh, We think we know about it, but I don't think we really fully appreciate, or or many people don't, uh, what it meant. It's an entirely bittersweet moment, of course. It's uh, for the Europeans in this continent a chance to sort of see what the $15 million that Jefferson had paid for Louisiana bought. And so it's this amazing mission, not dissimilar to the moon mission, only we're out of touch with mission control for just a few minutes on the other side of the moon. Here, Jefferson didn't hear anything for years. Well, Lewis and Clark and their men and then the French trader Charbonneau and his wife, Sacagawea, and their baby uh, all trekked across the country, intersecting with Native peoples, uh, many, many nations that would forever be completely changed by the contact with Lewis and Clark and and the world that they were ushering into this continent. I, I love it. The diaries are accessible. You can read them this day in their handwriting. The ordinary soldiers, uh, Meriwether Lewis and his profound melancholy that would lead eventually to his suicide, William Clark, more of a hail fellow, well met, and just their interactions with the Missouri River and then later the Columbia and its tributaries and the wonders that they saw, the scenes of visionary enchantment they they recorded almost daily, Uh, their intersections with those Native cultures. They were coming into places and telling people uh, who had lived on that land for hundreds of generations that that land now belonged to a great white father back in Washington, Thomas Jefferson. This is such a picture into your passion, into your mind. And I also want to talk about your 2009 film about national parks because um, it declares that they are America's best idea. And I thought that was a lovely way of describing the parks. Why do you think it's America's best idea? Well, we're actually stealing from Wallace Stegner, the namesake of this prize, uh, to set aside for the first time in human history land, not for the benefit of royalty, not for the benefit of the very rich, but for everybody and for all time. It was a uniquely American thing. It could not have happened anywhere else except in a country which had decided to share its riches with everyone, or at least ideally share its riches with everyone. And so we were able to set aside lands. Abraham Lincoln signed a bill in the middle of the Civil War, setting aside this beautiful tract of land, Yosemite, that would go to the care of a committee uh, determined by the California legislature. And then when there was spectacular land, uh, Wyoming territory that didn't have any government to oversee it, 
it became the world's first national park, and, and Yosemite would eventually catch up and join the fold. But we set in motion this utterly American thing, and it's an amazing journey that isn't just landscape and waterfalls and canyons, but it's about species diversification and saving species. We wouldn't have the buffalo around if we didn't have Yellowstone. We also have in the Everglades, which could have been endless series of strip malls and and golf courses and condos, uh, one of the most diverse environments in, in the world. And uh, we then expanded it the idea is growing, we hope, like us. When Thomas Jefferson said all men are created equal, he meant all white men of property free of debt. Uh, we don't mean that now. We've expanded it. And what you find in the parks is that the park idea evolves beyond scenery, beyond even species diversification to history. And we're the only country on earth that saves evidence of, of a darker side. There's, there's slave plantations along with the cabins of the slaves that made the comfortable life of that slave owner possible. It, in Sand Creek and Washita on the Great Plains in Colorado, you've got monuments to uh, the massacre of unarmed Native American women and children by the U.S. cavalry. There's Manzanar, the site of... Uh, the Japanese internment, Shankville, PA, where uh, the brave souls on United Flight 93 brought the plane intended for the White House or the Capitol to the ground in Pennsylvania is a site. We've been able to look at our history and understand and tolerate its complexity and then reflect it back to us. Well, Ken Burns, I wonder if we might just take a question from a listener at this point. Chris Lowell of Denver, in addition to asking if he can have lunch with you, uh, wonders, <laughs> is our polarization actually at a high point? And I wonder, with your long view of history, if there's any light you can shed on, on this moment. Well, you know, historians make pretty lousy prognosticators of what's going to happen. But but we bring a kind of optimism, I believe, to the present, because in a way we've seen it all before. Not precisely this way. History doesn't repeat itself. We're not condemned to repeat what we don't remember. Those are wonderful phrases. Mark Twain is supposed to have said that, um, and his his adventures in the West are as, as important as any. He said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Huh. And I think that whenever I work on a project, uh, when you finish it, you realize the extent to which aspects of it or many aspects of it correspond. Human nature doesn't change. That's the thing we all have to understand. And so we will be confronted with greed, but also generosity, with purience, but also puritanism. And we're in a constant flux about how to relate and deal with all of those things. And I, I think that for those who feel discouraged right now. Uh, you can point to the Civil War, to the Vietnam era, to many other places in American history where there were similar sorts of things. They're not exactly the same. And so our challenges and our fragility uh, remain, Chris, but I think that we can see these things as great tests. Uh, Abraham Lincoln said, the fiery trial through which we pass will light us down in honor or dishonor to the latest generation. I, I agree with the initial question. There's too much pluribus and not enough unum, as the late uh, historian <laughs> Arthur Schlesinger was fond of saying. And I've spent my entire professional life trying to speak to unum. I don't have a political point of view or an axe to grind in my films. I'm interested in sharing our common stories. Can you have time for one more question? Of course. So you're receiving the Wallace Stegner Award uh, at CU Boulder. Stegner was a, a novelist, an environmentalist, 
who'd grown up on the northern plains. And I, I wanted to play this from a documentary, not one of yours, but this is called Wallace Stegner, A Writer's Life. I think maybe two or three kinds of, of uh, experiences made a profound impression on me when I was five or six years old. One of them was sleeping under a wagon and, and feeling that wind come across the grassland for hundreds of miles. The, the, the bigness of night outside and the bigness of stars and the littleness of, of us in our absolutely unsheltered condition, nothing but a wagon to sleep under. I love that because it talks about, in a way, his smallness um, in relation to the universe, really. And I, I wonder if we might wrap up with when you have felt small, Ken Burns, when you have felt... Uh, small in the enormity of what's around you? Well, I think the West and the West of the imagination and the West of mythology as well as the West of fact provide us all, Easterners as well as Westerners, with a chance to experience what one observer of the National Park said was our atomic insignificance. And I think Stegner was understanding it. I've experienced it many, many times in and out of the park, in the gigantic vistas of the West, in which you realize that you are but the tiniest, tiniest drop in an ocean. And that atomic insignificance, as this observer said, has a funny way of connecting you to everything else and inspiriting you, making you feel bigger. The egotist in our midst is always diminished by his or her self-regard. And I find our ourselves out in nature, getting out of the rut of the normal day-to-day, permits us to have such experiences. That's what brings me to the West every year. That's what forces me to expand my horizons. I live in rural New Hampshire. It's incredibly beautiful there. But you can't see at a turn 100 miles or 200 miles Mm -hmm. and watch storms moving across southern Utah from uh, Monument Valley, watching them move across like Portuguese man of war, or realize that it's 76 miles on a dusty dirt track to the next town in north central Montana. Well, Ken Burns, it's been fun to hear you speak in poetry often. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. My pleasure. Documentary filmmaker Ken Burns talking about Western history and our current political time. Burns will receive this year's Wallace Stegner Award at CU Boulder, October 2nd. How much influence should name recognition have on an election? What about family history, the legacy left by a candidate's parents, grandparents, even great-grandparents? That's the focus of the latest episode of Purplish, the political podcast from CPR News. Here is Purplish host Sam Brash. Anria Wad, uh, you're a reporter here at Colorado Public Radio, just like me. That's what I'm told. Yep. And you're here to talk about Walker Stapleton. He's the Republican nominee for governor here in Colorado. And I think a good place to start would just be his name. Walker Stapleton. Walker Stapleton. Walker Stapleton. I'm Walker Stapleton. Because, like, once you're already in politics, a name isn't something you can really change or do anything about. And the Stapleton name has become a topic in this election. Can you just explain how? So if you've lived in Denver for any length of time, the name is sort of everywhere. You're used to probably seeing the name of the Stapleton neighborhood. That, of course, comes from the old Stapleton Airport that used to be there. Uh, There's also, if I recall correctly, there's a Stapleton School. Yeah. 
There, there is a. I went there. No. I went there. Yeah. <laughs> all right. DSST Stapleton. Go Knights. Very convenient. Um, so all of these namesakes, they belong to Benjamin Stapleton, who is uh, the former mayor of Denver. He was Denver's longest serving mayor. He served for five terms. And it just so happened that when he was elected back in 1923, he was a member of the KKK. And this is a really complicated thing for Walker Stapleton to have to address. Now, and Sean, this is certainly a very tough sub- subject. Yeah, and Walker Stapleton has been reluctant to talk mm-hmm. about this ugly chapter. And just to be clear, Walker Stapleton and Benjamin Stapleton, they're related. I think Walker Stapleton is Benjamin Stapleton's great-grandson. That's right. And you probably learned that from a campaign ad that Walker Stapleton had run in the 2010 uh, treasurer race, where he sort of puts that family connection right out front. My great-grandfather served five terms as Denver's mayor in the 1920s, the 1930s, and the 1940s. This involvement of the KKK, it's pretty well documented, but it's become more well-known recently as nationally we're having these tough conversations about race, about monuments, about who we name things for in the public square. Walker Stapleton has been swept right up into that. There's been this New York Times story that ran over the summer about the KKK connection. There's subsequently been editorials in the Denver Post and the Colorado Springs Gazette about this. How has he responded to all this coverage? So most recently, Recently, he gave an interview to CBS4 about it. Stapleton says he's not his great-grandfather, but he hasn't expressly denounced the elder Stapleton's involvement in the KKK until now. Do you want to condemn that? I categorically condemn racism of all forms, and I categorically condemn hate organizations, and, and they will have no place in my administration. But because of this moment that we're in right now... Because this isn't happening in a void, it just keeps coming up. That's what we're going to be talking about this episode. What does it mean when a candidate's name carries a complicated past? And should family history play a role in elections that are about the next governor and the future of Colorado? Well, so you're talking about the Stapleton name? I thought we were talking about the Stapleton name. I would argue that the Walker name is much more interesting. Walker Stapleton. His first name is more interesting than the Stapleton name. Believe it or not. Walker is more interesting than the name that ties him to a KKK member. Yes. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Stay with me. I promise I have a good explanation. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm here for it. Let's do it. And I want to talk about all the business about the Walker name, but let's start with that Stapleton name just for a second, because you mentioned Benjamin Stapleton was in the Ku Klux Klan. If that's true, why did Walker Stapleton ever talk about his great grandfather as somebody to be proud of? To answer that, let's do a little bit of time travel into the more recent past and go back to that campaign ad from the 2010 treasure race that I mentioned earlier. My great-grandfather served five terms as Denver's mayor. In the it's taped at Red Rocks Amphitheater, which arguably without Benjamin Stapleton wouldn't exist today. His accomplishments include building the first civic center in Colorado, helping to reinvigorate the Denver park system, including right here at Red Rocks, and building Colorado's first municipal airport. Stapleton Airfield. One reason that a lot of people cast Stapleton in positive terms is he's often remembered as this big public works mayor. What's happened since 2010 when Stapleton, you know, made that ad and now when he's being much more reluctant to talk about Benjamin Stapleton? Well, what's happened in the world since 2010? I mean, Ferguson, Black Lives Matter, Confederate statues have come down, Charlottesville. And in that time, the Stapleton neighborhood, uh, which is also named for him, his time in the Klan is why some residents there have advocated to change the name of the neighborhood. This isn't a name that we want our children to be attached to as they grow up. 
Okay, so the name itself has become more politicized. What about Benjamin Stapleton? Was he this master builder of Denver Public Works, or or was he like a tried-and-true Klansman? He was both. And that's the tricky thing about legacies. Both of those things are true. When he was elected mayor in 1923, he was member 1128 of the Ku Klux Klan. Though while he was campaigning for the office, he was accused of Klan affiliation. He very emphatically denied being involved in the Klan. But Klan support is not only what got him into office, it's what kept him there through a recall election. I mean, while he was sitting mayor, he went to South Table Mountain. That's the meeting place for the Klan. This is where they used to burn crosses, right, between Golden and Lakewood. And he pledged loyalty. He told the Klan they were going to get the kind of administration that they wanted. And he only turned against them in 1925 when their power began to diminish in Colorado. Okay, so it's not like he was governing in a hood. He he supported the Klan only when it was sort of politically necessary. Yeah, but a lot of people would argue that once you're in the Klan, you're in the Klan. There's no backsies. Um, Bill Convery is the former Colorado state historian. He says, it's important to understand the bargain that Stapleton was willing to make at this time to get elected and to stay mayor. He was not an ideological racist. He was a political opportunist. And his willingness to express racist views only went as far as the next election. So the way that Convery sees it is that the discussion that we're having right now about Ben Stapleton leaves out the fact that he was a political opportunist, that his membership to the Klan was just one of many calculations that he made throughout his career to stay in power. It's up to you to consider whether that's a footnote to history. What about Walker Stapleton? Did you have a chance to talk to him about the legacy of his great-grandfather? We tried. His campaign told us that Walker would rather, quote, focus on the future. During the primary, however, our colleague Ryan Warner did get a chance to talk with Stapleton about this issue at his son's soccer game. My son just got a goal. You must be lucky. <laughs> you must be lucky, Ryan. Um, there are a lot At of the soccer game, Stapleton said he's not running away from the legacy of his great-grandfather, but he doesn't think he should have to answer for the sins of a man he's never met. I am going to be judged by voters ultimately in this election for governor based on my accomplishments and the positions I've taken as the treasurer of Colorado for the last seven years. And so I think you can be uh, proud of the role that people in your family have have um, have, have had in public service. Uh, but, you know, you don't have to, uh, um, you know, doesn't mean you're emulating uh, their beliefs or their bad decisions or, or anything else. Uh, we all chart our own courses in life. Okay, that's Stapleton's take. You talk to this historian. What does he make of this whole question of political legacy and whether it's relevant in the 2018 campaign? So Comfrey says it's not as black and white as that. It's not a choice between condemning or celebrating him. Rather, he would like to see Walker Stapleton have these candid conversations with voters about Ben Stapleton's legacy and and talk about the good and the bad. Um, But ultimately, Bill says that Ben Stapleton isn't really relevant to the race in 2018. I barely remember my great-grandfather as a kid. I never knew my great-great-grandparents. Um, and so there is kind of a question about what what does Stapleton really owe us in terms of, of wrestling with his great-great-grandfather's legacy? There is, arguably, a far more relevant branch of Stapleton's family out there, though, the Bushes. Oh, the Bush family. Is this what you meant when you said the the Walker name earlier and how that's maybe more interesting? Mm -hmm. Yes. Walker as in George Herbert Walker Bush and his son George Walker Bush. Some would say 
maybe that this is something of a political dynasty. All right, Anne-Maria Wad, when we left off, you were telling me about how Walker Stapleton is a bush. And I wasn't entirely following, like, how he fit into this whole family. And so I've asked you to draw me a family tree. And we're going to talk through it. Let's get started. Sound good? Yeah, let me explain myself. All right. <laughs> Let's do it. Okay. Let's begin the story with George Herbert Walker and his wife, Luli Ware. Um, this is the couple to remember. George so, Herbert Walker, Luli Ware. George and Luli, okay. mom and dad. Okay. George forms an investment banking firm in St. Louis. This is where the family becomes really wealthy. And this lovely pair has six children. Uh, among those six children is Dorothy Walker. Dorothy Walker marries Prescott Sheldon Bush. Prescott Sheldon Bush becomes a U.S. senator for Connecticut. Okay. They eventually have their own bunch of kids. Among them is George Herbert Walker Bush, who we know becomes a president and is the father to another president, George W. Bush. Got it? Okay. okay. Yeah. So so that's the, the... The Bush side. That's the Bush side of the okay. family. Let's do the Stapleton side. Okay. So let's go back to mom and dad, George Herbert Walker and Luli Ware. The couple we started. George with. and Luli. Another one of their kids is Lewis Walker. He joins that big fancy investment bank in St. Louis. His daughter is another Dorothy Walker. She eventually marries Craig Stapleton. Oh. That's the grandson of Mayor Benjamin Stapleton. And Dorothy Walker Stapleton and Craig Stapleton, those are Walker Stapleton's parents. They go on to have Walker Stapleton. Ta-da! That, that's Walker Stapleton. Yes. So we made it to Walker. All right. So where does that put him in relation to the Bushes who became president? He's a cuz. Well, he's like, <laughs> he's a second cuz, but still a cuz. Got it. Okay. <laughs> he's a cuz. He's a cousin. Um, nice. How much does the Stapleton branch uh, of this family interact with the Bush branch of this family? I mean, is it Christmases? Is it occasional family reunions? No, I mean, I would argue that they're probably closer than that. Take, for example, Craig Stapleton. This is Walker's dad. Craig Stapleton and George W., they co-own the Texas Rangers together. And that was that was up until W. runs for governor of Texas. Later on, when W. is president, Craig uh, is appointed ambassador to France and later ambassador to the Czech Republic. Another more recent anecdote is Walker Stapleton and his wife were married in 2006 at Kennebunkport, Maine. Um, this is where the Bushes have their centuries-old oceanfront compound. So I think they're... They're pretty bushy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like these two families are really tied pretty closely together. But, like, has being a bush mattered uh, to Walker Stapleton throughout his life, throughout his career? I mean, has it been an important thing for him specifically? Walker Stapleton doesn't have a super long political career just yet. So we do have a small sample size to draw from. But there are some parallels we can draw. He went to a lot of private schools on the East Coast in Connecticut and Massachusetts. Um, He goes on to Harvard and to the London School of Economics. There are a lot of those degrees from top and Ivy League schools kind of scattered throughout the Bush family. So that's Mm -hmm. already something. After school in 1997, he moves to San Francisco. He goes into the private sector. He starts working for an investment firm called Hambrecht & Quist. Um, It's a really interesting detail, actually. Early underwriters for lots of tech IPOs like Netscape and Amazon. Hmm. That's kind of interesting. So, you know, his opponent, Jared Polis, we just spent a whole episode talking about, you know, his early days – 
and his early career in which he built his fortune. A lot of that happened um, with the internet in those Mm -hmm. early days in the internet. I guess I just didn't realize that connection. Yeah, shameless plug, shameless plug. Right? (laughs) Um, So after that, Walker Stapleton kind of bops around to a bunch of different companies, works in real estate, investment banking. He moves to Colorado in the early 2000s, kind of continues to quietly toil away in the private sector, and then pops back up to run for treasurer in about 2009. So that's sort of what connects him to the Bushes, is that he goes to these elite schools, he definitely has this, you know, history of investment banking, which which his family and the Bush side and the Stapleton side share. Right. Is there anything else that kind of... There is another key way that they're connected. Um, The Bush family has this long record of public service. It's charity work. It's volunteerism. Walker's no exception to that. Early on when they arrived in Denver, Jenna and Walker Stapleton were already uh, sitting on the board of the Boys and Girls Club of Metro Denver. Um, He also sat on the board for the Denver Public Library Friends Foundation, and both he and his wife volunteered for nonprofit around town. So uh, then in 2010, he wins the treasurer's race. Uh, Can you remind us quickly what the treasurer does? So one aspect of the treasurer's office that voters are probably really familiar with, thanks to those flashy ads where Walker Stapleton is standing in Bronco Stadium. He's on the big screen. I'm Colorado treasurer Walker Stapleton. Like most Coloradans, I love Broncos football. And as your treasurer, I love finding ways to give people their money back. And that's what the great Colorado payback is all about. Our office is safeguarding more than $600 million of unclaimed funds. The great Colorado payback. This is the state's unclaimed property program. It's uh, like a lost and found. So say you left like $30 in a bank account 15 years ago or some collectibles in a safety deposit box. Right. And then you just forgot about them. The state treasurer's job is to retrieve that property and get it back to you. But you have to sign up for this program. Um, So... Thanks to these ads, thousands of new people have signed up for the program as a result. Um, A lot of the other responsibilities he deals with, he oversees the state's investments. So that's why the treasurer is usually very involved in debates around the Public Employees Retirement Fund, known as PARA. Right. And this is the way in which I know Stapleton most. I mean, he put forward one of a few plans to stabilize PARA last year ahead of an eventual compromise in the legislature. His plan came to be seen as kind of the more conservative option among a range of options. Yeah. So Para has been this this big issue for Stapleton the whole time he's been treasurer. It's something he campaigned on back in 2010. Um, and as part of his campaign, one of the big buzz lines he's had is, I am the loudest voice on Para reform. And at times, he has been, quite literally, a very loud voice on Para. Here he is on Sean Hannity in 2012. This is people taking advantage of the system to give themselves six-figure pensions. This is about people retiring in their mid-50s for the rest of their lives uh, on the state's dime. Uh, This is totally and completely unsustainable. And it's our kids and the future generations of this country that are going to pay the price for it. And as treasurer, Stapleton has really keyed in on issues around fiscal conservatism. So it sounds like that's the way in which he really links up with with these bushes is kind of around this idea of fiscal conservatism. I would say so. Um, He's been really consistent about using the treasurer's pulpit to advocate for fiscally conservative positions. So it's not just para. It's things like being a really big defender for Colorado's energy industry, fighting back regulations. He pushed really hard against a ballot proposal in the 2016 election that would have established universal health care in Colorado. He called it the biggest tax increase in Colorado's history. I'm Treasurer Walker Stapleton. And here's the deal with Amendment 69. It's not an affordable health care system. It's a $25 billion tax increase. 
and it puts bureaucrats in charge of your health care decisions. I mean, these are key issues where you've been able to rely on Walker Stapleton to speak up about them. I'm Colorado Treasurer Walker Stapleton, and I'm voting no on Amendment 69. Join me. Okay, so Stapleton jumps into the governor's race after serving just about two terms as treasurer. How has his connection to the Bushes come into play in this election? Money, 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 money. (laughs) Uh, Just a quick glance at a campaign finance report and you see a lot of Bush last names. George H.W. and W. and Laura Bush and Jeb Bush all giving the maximum that they can to Walker's campaign. Okay. It's also a two-way street. So when W. ran for president originally, Walker donated. When he ran for re-election, Walker donated. When Jeb ran for president in 2016, he donated. And he also threw a donation to Jeb's PAC as well. This really highlights what political dynasties are at the end of the day. They're networks of people who help each other out. So when running a successful campaign is as expensive as it is right now in 2018, why not make it a family affair? Sure. And just for some context, even though Walker Stapleton has all these Bushes giving as much as they can to his campaign, I mean, the amount he's taken into to his campaign, you know, not a super PAC supporting him, but his campaign is so much less than what his opponent uh, has donated to his own campaign. Jared Polis, the Democratic nominee, has donated $18 million of his own money to his campaign. So just for some context just there, I want to note that. But it sounds like people like George W. Bush, these really high-profile Bushes, are helping out Walker Stapleton behind the scenes in his race for governor. Are they helping him out on the campaign trail in public? So we've heard about closed-door fundraisers that W. has participated in for Walker, but he hasn't been out front on the campaign trail here in Colorado. He has, however, been out on the campaign trail in Texas and Florida, um, stumping for candidates in the midterm elections in those states. But so far, no show for a Stapleton event in Colorado. Huh. Any idea why that might be? Were you around in 2016? George Bush made a mistake. We can make mistakes. But that one was a beauty. We should have never been in Iraq. We have destabilized. I think 2016 is where we really start to see that Bush legacy run into some trouble when it comes to the Republican Party. There were no weapons of mass destruction. I I could care less about the insults that Donald Trump gives to me. It's blood sport for him. He enjoys it, and I'm glad he's happy about it. He but spent I am sick and tired of him going after my family. Uh, according to Magellan Strategies, Colorado Republicans give Trump an 80 percent approval rating. And Stapleton has been really working to appeal to Trump voters, especially during that primary. Denver's policy of barring police from helping federal law enforcement deport criminals just doesn't make sense. As your next governor, I'll stop it. I'll stand with Donald Trump to get illegal aliens who commit crimes deported. Walker Stapleton. In the general election, his support for Trump has been a little bit more muted, but he still needs those Trump votes, which might explain why he's being a little quieter about his connection to the Bush family and to their political dynasty. What should voters make of the idea of political dynasties in general? Because I think a lot of people are pretty uncomfortable uh, with these families that tend to always achieve elected office. I mean, here we are in a country that ran away from a British monarchy, and it kind of seems like sometimes we have an elected aristocracy. We have this handful of families that keeps showing up again and again and again. This goes back to the founding fathers. It's funny that you should mention that. They debated a lot about whether elected officials should be paid by the state so they could be kept accountable to the public and also as a way to sort of keep aristocrats from dominating public service. 
But if we're going to go back to the founding fathers, I mean, I have to mention the fact that John Adams was president number two and his son, John Quincy Adams, was president number six. So obviously this situation has been with us from day one. I would dispute your point about people feeling uncomfortable with political dynasties because I actually think there are plenty of people who don't feel uncomfortable. Stephen Hess is a fellow emeritus at the Brookings Institute, and he wrote a book that I studied quite a bit for this episode called America's Political Dynasties. He says you can't generalize. Not all political dynasties are either good or bad. On average, these people were sometimes at least guided by uh, the sense of being true not only to their country, but to their families. The best I can say is that Americans did, did well enough with these families. By and large, they, they, they produce good government for us. And he says it's honorable that some families, like the Bushes, have this tradition of putting their wealth back towards public service. All right. And taking all this together, what have you learned about political dynasties from reporting specifically about Walker Stapleton? I mean, the man's related to two living presidents. That's not a that's not a throwaway piece of trivia in a gubernatorial election. That's that's not nothing. I think that the biggest takeaway is that if you're a public servant and you happen to be related to a lot of other people who are public servants and live their lives publicly, um, that can be a wonderful asset. But it can also be, you know, it can make things messy. And I think that you see it in this case where our perceptions of these men, these legacies, they're still being written. They're still, I mean, in the case of Benjamin Stapleton, they're still being sort of revised. And I think Walker Stapleton really embodies that problem when you think about it. If you look at his earlier political career and you look at how much he wanted to run on who he was related to. And now, as those legacies have gotten a little more thorny, a little more complicated, he's sort of drawn back and started to run as, a, as his own man. But I think at the end of the day, voters are going to get a ballot that has a first name and a last name on it that have years and decades and centuries of political and historical significance attached to both names. Walker Stapleton. Voters are going to have to weigh that against his eight years as treasurer, his political opponents, everything else that's going on in this election. It's just one factor. And whether a name is a name just depends on the voter. Okay, there you go. A deep dive into a single politician's name and what it can say about his family. After all this, I have to quickly note one more thing about the name of Walker Stapleton's opponent in the governor's race. Jared Polis, the Democratic nominee, changed his name just before he got into politics. So he's like really into the name Jared, right? Like what was his name before? Uh his name his name has always been Jared. He changed his last name. Uh, yeah, yeah. When Polis was in his 20s, he changed his name from Jared Schutz, which is his dad's last name, to Jared Polis, which was his mom's maiden name. Wow. To honor his mom and because he likes it better. Okay. And while the Polis family is by no means a political dynasty, it's fascinating. His dad has a PhD in physics from Princeton. And after he married Susan Polis, who's now Susan Polis Schutz, they traveled the country stopping off at concerts and festivals to sell posters and that's the enterprise that eventually turned into Blue Mountain greeting cards which sold for just short of 800 million dollars in the 1990s. So they were so they were like hippies and then they became hippie millionaires. <laughs> right, it's one of the more bolder love stories out there. Right. Anyway, if you want to hear more about Polis, listen to our last episode. It's all about his fortune, which also has its roots in the sale of Blue Mountain and how Polis has used that fortune to influence Colorado politics. 
CPR's Sam Brash and Anne-Maria Wad. Next time, Purplish travels to southern Colorado, parts of which went for Donald Trump in the last election. It marked the first time a Republican has won in places like Pueblo in decades. What happened? And what might that mean for the midterms and beyond? You can subscribe to Purplish wherever you get your podcasts, and you can hear it every Monday through Election Day here on Colorado Matters. Small-town festivals in Colorado are a way for a community to show off, from Palisade with its Peach Festival to Trinidad's Artocade. They're a chance to lure visitors and their money. But organizers of the Fall Festival in Crested Butte have the opposite idea. CPR's Nathaniel Miner explains. All summer and winter long, downtown Crested Butte's t-shirt shops and restaurants are usually full of tourists. But Gunnison County resident Cassidy Taz Garcia says fall is different. It's definitely more a time for the locals. Locals will even say like the fall is kind of their summer, their time to get out. It just reminds me why I continue to try to make it work to live here. There may be fewer tourists around, but it's not exactly quiet during Vinatok, a days-long festival for locals. They gather for storytelling events, costume dancing, and the big draw, the burning of the grump. This is from a video of the grump burning a few years ago. Throngs of people gather around the giant wooden man. He represents everyone's troubles. Sparks fly, and then he's up in flames. Vinatok started more than 30 years ago. It was born out of a fight over a proposal to mine Mount Emmons just outside of town. At the time, the town was in a painful transition from a coal mining community to its present status as a tourist destination. Marcy Tellender remembers tensions were high when she moved there as a young ski bum. We were anti-molybdenum mining here, the new folks, who hadn't lived for generations here hadn't born our children here. Tellender wanted to bridge that divide, so she spent time with all these retired miners, listening to their stories. We started talking about, why don't we have a celebration? Why don't we celebrate one of the old traditions? Tellender dreamed up the idea of Vinatok, Slovenian for the time of year that grapes are harvested. And yes, wine and other libations are a big part of this celebration. But from the get-go, storytelling was the centerpiece. An old miner, a devout Catholic, told the first story at the first festival. It was about a day he came out of the mine right at dusk. And as he stepped out, he looked up at the bowl across the valley of Mount Emmons. And as the light was starting to glow red on the iron oxide stones in that face, he suddenly saw the shape of what he called Our Lady, the Red Lady. The mine has never been built, and the two sides never agreed on it either. But Tellender says that story, and others over the years, taught both sides something hugely important about each other. What we did do is we created a communal way of speaking with each other. It can create honoring of the past. It can bring healing for the present. And stories can also create hope for the future. The festival is still a big deal for people that live in the area now. Cassidy Taz Garcia moved to Crested Butte out of college and got involved with Vinatok soon after. She especially looks forward to a secret ceremony just for local women. And no, she wouldn't describe it to me. But she says it meant a lot for her to be there. 
a brief break from the town's macho extreme sports culture. There's very few times where you're completely surrounded by um, femininity and feminine energy. And that felt really lovely. And it just made me feel like I had this community and sisterhood that um, was much bigger than I thought. Festival founder Marcy Tellender says the event is purposely kept private. They don't advertise it. Dates are only published a few days ahead of time so locals can make it. She wants it to stay a celebration for the town, not a performance for others. And Tellender points out there's nothing stopping would-be tourists from starting their own festivals. I recommend you head out into the streets of your community, out into your suburbs, out into the country around you, and create what comes through you naturally. And if that doesn't convince you, you'll at least have to wait until next year. Out of respect for the spirit of Vinatak, we aren't previewing the events. This year's festival wrapped up over the weekend. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. And I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with Colorado Matters today. You can follow me on Twitter at CPR Warner, and the show is at Colorado Matters. This is CPR News from Centennial.